Hello and welcome to Arrest All Mimics. My name is Ben Tallon. This is the Creative Innovation Podcast. How are you doing, everyone? Thank you for listening. Cheers for coming back. Welcome, if you're new to the show. The weather this week is nomadic accents. Yep, we've got Ben Crick all the way from Australia via New York City in San Francisco, and he's the creative director of Collins, one of the best agencies out there, in my opinion. Uh, a good get to get for the show. We'll get into Ben a little later on and we'll talk more about his fantastic journey and his great work with Collins at the moment. But first, a little thank you for those sponsors who keep this show free. So go and support them. Illustrationweb.com, founding sponsor, illustration and animation agency dealing with a whole range of fashion illustrators, lettering artists, large-scale mural artists, portrait artists, you name it, they're on there. Go and check out their awesome portfolios and their brilliant new section of the website, heartinternet.co.uk. Tech sponsor, they give us a digital tip every episode and they also provide fantastic SEO, social media advice, hosting, domain names, all the good web stuff that you need to be prominent with your business and your creative practice on Tinternet. <laughs> um, I amuse myself if nobody else um, they're great guys and the tip this episode comes from Ben's sentiment of not all sharing from the same inspiration pool and why design has to be unique and come from within and we have to feed the mind with all these different things so I think the overriding sentiment is not to get too caught up in the whole digital spectrum and to use it effectively and sparingly and combine it with real world experience so that you are coming to the table with a a high percentage of you and not everyone else. Uh, Heartinternet.co.uk. Go and check them out. Foilco, fantastic new rebrand. Who's seen it? If not, go and check it out. Studio DBD alumni on the show. You can go and listen to Dave's story on episode 108. Um, if memory serves. Yep, 108. Uh, and he's just done a fantastic rebrand of Foilco, who have the largest range of hot stamping foils serving the graphic design industry for many years now and in a wonderful way. So these guys provide everything on the book covers, on the magazine mastheads, on the wine bottles. If it's shiny and it's beautiful and it's sexy and it's a nice typeface, chances are it's Foilco. Uh, go and check them out. They're awesome people, people, and they really do guide you through the process. And it's no, it's really not as difficult as it as it might first seem to work with files. So it's really quite accessible. So go and check these guys out. Filecode.co.uk and get your thoughts over on the rebrands. I think it's awesome. I'll share some of that on the social accounts at Arrest or Mix. Hit us up with your feedback on that. Uh, great little tease for the campaign. Whoever saw that by Studio DBD, kind of designers uh, slamming the logo. Brilliant, brilliant idea. Go and have a look. If you haven't seen it, it's really worth your time. Uh, and last but very much not least, the Association of Illustrators, the AOI.com. Uh, fantastic organisation supporting the illustration industry with great work such as their current business empowerment campaign. So they've got to be in their bonnet about the lack of business acumen going on with too many of, uh, of us illustrators and they want to help and they're doing a whole range of services to deal with that. So they're about to launch the pricing calculator. They've got all sorts of great workshops, lectures, uh, they're really getting out there and pushing it. Hashtag not a hobby. So do spread the word if you're already on it and go and check it out if you haven't because it may be of great help. So thank you to all those sponsors keeping the show free for you guys. Uh, that's enough of the business. Uh, thank you for coming back. I hope you enjoyed the recent episode with O Street from Glasgow, another wonderful agency. I'm getting a nice little run of these under my belt at the moment, getting insights into where the great work is done. Um, it's interesting. I mean, for me as myself, as a freelance illustrator, 
It's great for me to spend time with these people and share these insights into bigger companies to see how these accounts are handled, to see how clients are dealt with, to see how these great minds like uh, Tessa and Johnny from from O Street and like today's guest Ben Crick manage big clients and kind of still manage to turn out groundbreaking work because it's quite impressive to me. If I ever get commissions for massive clients like that, I'm generally working, you know, through my agency or with a design agency who's handling that work. So to hear it coming from them in the direct relationship with those clients is quite an eye-opener. And Ben's going to get deep into that today, among a whole other range of things. He's going to tell us about his journey from Australia to New York City to work for Collins and on to San Francisco, where he became their creative director, working under Brian Collins, who's one of the best minds in the business. Um, lauded by many, with good reason. I'm sure he's as modest as the rest of us, and we'll knock that back, but... Um, let me tell you, the, the man's mind uh, is something else in the work that's produced by Brian over the years and his agency, Collins. And Ben's going to tell us right about what it's like to sit under that learning tree uh, and to soak up that experience and about the wisdom that, that that Brian will put into projects and how it's helped him to develop himself. He's going to talk about the way the keystones of our creativity are already in place, but it takes some serious um, archaeology, I guess is the right word, to, to, to unlock that. As we grow up, you know, we're kind of doing the things that we want to go on to do. Sadly, some turn away from that and kind of deny that character. But thankfully for those of us who end up in this industry, we've got some kind of semblance of where we want to go, what we what we dream about, you know. So we're going to get into that. We're going to talk about why designing for other designers is a very dangerous trap, why the client's problem must be the key focus and how constraints are, are no excuse when it comes to turning out good designs. So there's a lot to get through. Uh, and it's a fascinating conversation, so I want your feedback, please, at Arrest All Mimics on the social media, whichever your preferred platform is, we're on the big ones. What have you been up to? Let us know. Let me know who you want to hear about on the show. Drop me a little review if you get a chance, please. It really helps the podcast uh, over on the iTunes or Spotify, wherever you're listening to this stuff, please. Just take a few seconds out because it really does help the show to grow, and I do this often in my own time because I'm passionate about creativity and I just want to share... The, the genius that comes from a lot of my guests and, and the hilarity and these rich characters that I have the pleasure of inter- uh, interviewing. I just, I love passing that on and, it, and it, it boggles my mind a little bit now that this is getting on for, you know, 140 episodes of this show and, I, and I've got, I, I love it more and more each week and there are no signs of slowing down. The, the show's going to continue to evolve. As I said, we're on all these platforms now, we're on Spotify, we're on Stitcher, uh, we're on Podbay, we're on iTunes, all the good stuff, uh, and it's a huge, huge compliment that people keep coming back and listening and the numbers keep growing, so thank you. Spread the word at Arrest on the Mix on the social. Uh, we've got loads of good shows coming up. We've got JKR, Jones Knowles, Richie, Creative Director, Sean Thomas coming up. He's going to be talking at DNAD Festival. If you get the chance to get down there, please do go and check that out. Um, with my own stuff, so I just launched a big project, a big personal project that's been going on for five years, collaborating with music photographer Andrew Cotterill, 50 plus images, music photography with my illustration, and it's called Lend Me Your Ear. We're doing this in conjunction with Young Urban Arts Foundation and Calm, because the themes within this project that are especially important to Andy and I, self-expression, identity, and creativity, and it's all about the examples set by these larger-than-life characters who've succeeded because of who they are, not in spite of that. So we wanted to get this going, and we wanted to make the exhibition, and it's going to be happening. We're going to now going to announce that on the next episode, and in between, if you keep an eye on the social media. But the website is now live. You can go and take a look at lendmeyourearart.com. Um, it's all up there. Get us your feedback. We've got the likes of Ian Brown, Pink, Grace Jones, Savages. We've got Florence and the Machine. We've got... 
Skepta, we've got Plan B, we've got the grime artists of the current day, including Jay Huss. Really, really broad range of, of these fascinating characters, and, and it's a real, real uh, proud project. It's something I've been working on, like I said, for five years with a wonderful photographer and great human being all around, Andy. So keep an eye out for the dates. Come and see us down at the show, please, uh, and spread the word for us. So go and check that one out anyway, but that's enough of uh, my own stuff. Anyway, without further ado, I think we should get you to the conversation, so please enjoy my conversation with Ben Crick, uh, writing from San Francisco, from Collins. It's a bit of a rainy day here, but which is not what I was promised moving to California. Actually, it's been a rainy month here, which is specifically not what I was promised when I moved to California, but um, <laughs> it's all right. It's all right so far. Yeah. How long have you been there? Uh, I moved out here in um, July. Yeah, July. So, oh, like, wow, like, you know, seven or eight months at this point, which is honestly mind-blowing. It feels like it was yesterday. Wow, yeah, I can only imagine. Where, where did you move from? Uh, I lived in New York for the past five, five and a half or six years, somewhere around there. Okay. And then previously, Australia. Um, not that you can really tell from my accent, or so I'm told. I guess I sound confused <laughs> at this point. I'm just kind of all over the place. So. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, a bit of a nomad then. Yeah, I don't know. I think my parents are actually um, English originally, um, although you know they moved to the Australia when they were fairly young. But my extended family is English, so I, I lived in Sydney, so I never had a particularly strong accent um, to begin with. Yeah. And then I moved to the states, and I guess I'm just impressionable, and I picked up a few words from here, and now I just sound, you know, strange. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? How, how some people do kind of pick up wherever they're living for a certain period of time, and others others just can go their entire life and stay exactly where they began. <laughs> uh, honestly, I'm envious of it, um, if I'm honest with you, just because I feel like, you know, it's there's something kind of shameful about the fact that I've just lost my accent so easily. But... <laughs> <laughs> so what about your background then? Let's do, I mean, I love talking about people's child, childhoods in terms of, you know, were you, were you a crazy kid? Do you have a creative family? What's the deal there? Yeah, I was... <laughs> I was going to say, how far back do you want me to go? I just, um, I just love those very, very early formative roots. I'm ever yeah. intrigued to hear what people's people have in that respect. I, I think it's really interesting because, in some respects, looking back, it felt like I was destined to be in the creative world, but it was never something that felt inevitable or obvious to me growing up. Um, like my uncle, uh, like. On my father's side, um, the whole family kind of operates in various creative industries. So my uncle and my grandfather are industrial designers and have made all sorts of things. In fact, my uncle made this um, hard helmet, like hard hat for construction sites that's like the world's most popular. There's like, you know, millions and millions of this hard hat and they've turned them into like novelty beer openers and all of this stuff. (laughs) I had no idea until I started design, you know, what he did. I just remember, you know, I'd go over to his house and he always had a really nicely kind of put together place and I was like, well, this is nice. Um, and then my grandfather, the same thing. And, you know, he just had this like incredible imagination. <clears throat> I remember literally as a kid, he would, um, you know, he'd tell me stories and he'd make a point of just making them up as he went along and kind of asked me to throw like suggestions in there and he'd kind of fold it into the story. So wow. and I was always super, super, yeah, I know it's, it's kind of incredible. And it always kind of, at least, you know, my memory of it is it always kind of hung together and made sense. Um, but that was kind of amazing. So, you know, and then my father is like a computer programmer. My other uncle is, um, kind of in the construct, like, uh, I think he's a project manager for some really beautiful architectural projects in Australia. So, um, 
just kind of all this kind of stuff that had been going on in my life but had never really penetrated my brain, I think. Mm. Uh, I, I did um, in school, I did design and technology. Um, was the, My two best subjects were design and technology, which is uh, kind of like not a real subject, uh, <laughs> at least at the school that I went to. Um, but I really had a good time in that and like woodworking class and things like that. And I finished school, didn't know what I wanted to do, moved to Canada for a year, um, asked my auntie who worked in post-production, <laughs> you can start to see what I'm talking about, um, like kind of like film and post-production, um, what I, you know, what, if I wanted to do something creative, what course should I do? Uh, and there was this kind of course in Australia called visual communication, which is this very broad kind of, um, you know, teaching you about the thinking of design. And then there's a whole bunch of, um, courses that give you a taste of different applications of kind of creativity. So, um, you can do kind of a motion graphics sub major, you could do photography, you could do, um, illustration, set design, um, advertising kind of like all the different they try to touch on all the different kind of applications Mm. um and i and i got into that and i and it was kind of like you know i think it was kind of like a light switch flipped for me um i had this moment where i was like oh my god i can't believe that this is a thing that you can get paid for and that is a real career path you know i think coming out of school the this kind of notion was that you ended up in a cubicle and I don't know, hammered away at a keyboard. And I'd never kind of mentally challenged that notion in my head, even though I had all these kind of people around me who kind of didn't really do that, but we just didn't really talk about jobs. It does kind of just hover there in the background for so many years for so many people. And it's just interesting, you know, at what point people have that revelation because it takes a long time for everyone because it's not the given thing to do in most communities. Yeah, it was really bizarre for me because once that light uh, switch flipped how much like walk I did the way that I had made decisions in the past like I was into skateboarding and I remember I would always buy wrong size skateboard because I bought it for the picture on the bottom and then I would inevitably scratch the picture up and it was kind of meaningless <laughs> and my whole musical taste was defined not necessarily by the music like I would just wander around and pick up the best looking album cover yeah um, and it's just kind of bizarre looking back on that now and being like wow I was always kind of <clears throat> I don't know, ma- like magnetized towards the kind of visually arresting um, world, but just never really aware that it was a thing that you could do, just more of a kind of consumer of that stuff. So yeah. that was a really bizarre experience for me. Yeah, and so many so many stories start in the same way, really. And, and I guess that's why there's the importance of whether it be a mentor or a, the right course that gives you the, you know, the, the taster of all the mediums that, that, gets that mm-hmm. gets that engine started so to speak um did you did you gravitate towards any field at that point i don't know i mean i did photography the things that i focused on in school were photography motion graphics and you know i wanted to do print but it, you know you have to be able to pay for things to get printed so yeah <laughs> that one was kind of like bootleg most of the time <laughs> um but it, it was mostly those things and then i think my first job was at a post-production um studio and then I, I think the thing that actually was interesting that it taught me um, in getting a taste for all of these things is that I just really enjoyed applying design to all sorts of different things. And I really enjoyed this kind of notion that, um, you know, the Massimo yelly kind of idea of like, if you're a good, if you're good at design, you can design anything. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed the, during university kind of like being able to design all of these different things and apply that thinking to different mediums and outcomes. And I think in the end, that's what 
one of the reasons that sucked me into um, branding because branding in my mind is like the gateway drug of design. <laughs> Once you design the brand, the outcome of that brand changes depending on whoever you're talking to, what their brief is, what their business is. So you can end up making books and websites and you know mm. products, environments, and it just gives you this kind of reason to get involved in all these different aspects of design. And I always really enjoyed that um, stuff. I think habit habit is the um, enemy of creativity in some respects. Yeah, I think too many patterns and uh, yeah, I, I agree completely. Too much formula um, can you know we can, can become quite jaded if we've got introspective minds. Yeah, and I think you know once you you kind of develop, I mean always make sure that you're digesting new stuff or stretching yourself in, new, in order to kind of you know feed your mind. I suppose. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it's really important. I mean, you know, like, and it's the same thing. I guess it's, you mentioned earlier about the double-edged sword and the, the kind of easy access to to all these tools. The trouble being that so many people have got access. Oh. I think that that's the thing, isn't it? It's uh, too many people feeding off the same, you know, inspiration, and, and we stop looking around our own little worlds, which is where the, surely the best material comes from that makes us unique. Yeah, I think it. There's a. <laughs> so I was like. I, um, you know, listening to your previous podcast, and I was like, you know, you have that Shark Tank question: What do you like and what do yeah. you dislike? And I was like, trying to think about that ahead of time, so I didn't get stuck on the spot and have nothing to say. <laughs> um, and this kind of like, you know, not to give it away, but this kind of gets at one of my main frustrations, I think, with design, designer, design as it is now, is you know, the proliferation of visuals and the ease and the access. We've kind of um, devalued the thinking behind design in some respects i feel like by just showing so much visual good stuff and and i think you know everyone comes out of school or 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 comes into design and there there's there's these kind of moves these design moves or this kind of criteria for success that you can now kind of see in all this work that's out there and and people use that as a kind of measuring stick rather than i think briefs and clients and concept I feel like more often than not, you know, I think style is driving design. I think that's a unfortunate side of just like the ease and access and flooding the market with all of this, you know, beautiful stuff. Um, but without context and without all that other good stuff, I think it, you know, there's, there is some downsides to that. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree completely. Is that, and is that something, I mean, we'll talk about briefly about your role in a moment, but is that something as a creative director that you see? I mean, you must get contact from, from people coming out of education now. Yeah, all the time. All the time. I think, you know, even specific schools have such specific styles that come out of them as well. And then just, you know, it's so easy to see how the the moves of the moment are affecting the way people are doing things. You just see these kind of recur, you know, there's like, it becomes like an echo chamber and everyone's kind of iterating on a theme, trying to find their kind of slightly nuanced version of that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, some of, some of it's really good stuff and not to say that like everything's bad at all. And, and some people do some really amazing things. Um, but then you just get a lot of stuff that feels very derivative and it's, it's almost like, I think one of my frustrations is often as designers, we look at other designers as our main audience and not at, 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 at the brief and the client's problem. Um, and so, you know, people, especially when you're younger, you're trying to, you're trying to work on your craft and at the same time, you're trying to kind of get validation for, am I good at this? You know, do I belong 
in this kind of community. Um, do, I think, you know, it's a really tough time. Um, and, and the trap is that it's, it becomes easy to kind of do the work that you, you know, it's almost like there's a checklist of things that you can do and you know, people will like it and it becomes very easy to, to fall into that trap. I think of kind of doing the moves that are kind of out there that, you know, people like, and that kind of gives you this sense of I'm part of it. I'm doing good work and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. And so I, and I guess this, and I guess also to a degree, it might be quite easy at times to get complacent and please clients enough to get a brief over the line without actually stopping anyone in their tracks who's going to be the end user. Right. Yeah. That's the other thing. I mean, you know, but we could all kind of get through the day and and our lives with way less stress if if we kind of gave up on things earlier. It's just quality design always comes down to the designer pushing through and kind of trying to get the best out of it and then and then in many cases helping the client understand why this is the best thing yeah um, yeah it's just kind of a weird paradox of what we do there is there is and, and then i guess you know that, that's why the conversation has to be you know that's to be that conversation of value right at the start of a brief and, and and throughout i guess with the client and you know it's always negotiation going on yeah. So let's talk about Collins and your current role. Oh sure. What do you want to know? <laughs> so uh, so well, I mean, how did you get there? How did you how, how did you uh, end up coming to Collins and and what's the current current role? Um. Yeah. So I so I so you know picking up I guess from from where I left off, I started working for a design company in Australia called Maud, which at the time was. Um, well, actually, I was originally I was just a seat warmer at Maud. I was I was um, doing a part time job at a um, at a friend's um, or at a, a post production company called the Lab. And the creative director there, I was like, I'm I'm interested in branding, and he was like, I've got a friend who has this small design shop, um, and he introduced me. And they didn't have a job for me, but he he had a spare desk, and he was just like, Hey, why don't you if you want to, you can just come in and hang about and do your own work and just use the studio space. And so, you know, I was super keen and honestly being in a studio environment of a, and, a, and a branding shop is what I wanted to do. So I just kind of posted up there and basically stuck around until he gave me a job. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, and then, uh, and then, and that was it. And then I worked there for like, I think something like three and a half or maybe four years, but we went from a two person shop to a eight, six or eight person shop. Um, over that time, um, the guy who started it, his name's David Park. So I was really happy to be a part of that kind of journey from when they started to where they are now. Um, and then, I, and then I think that kind of imbued a lot in me of kind of like one, I just enjoyed branding. I got to work on a bunch of small projects. I honed my craft and you know, the, I think working in a small studio is really valuable because you have to do everything and there's no one to kind of like pass the pass the baton on to um so you just kind of learn as quickly as possible and i learned print and and basically by myself um phoning printers and kind of try, trial running projects and things like that and, you know learning client management and everything um which was just like would become i think hugely important to me and as a as a kind of experience was really um foundational and kind of like where i wanted to go in design and also the skill set that was kind of valuable for me later on so that was an incredible experience. And then I think I just had this moment where um, and we worked on a couple big, big projects, but not really. It was mostly small stuff. Um, and I had this moment 
completely abstract of work where I just was like, I don't, I, I feel like I love Australia and I love design in Australia, but I feel like I need to live somewhere else in order to kind of like have made a decision about where I live. I guess I have this notion that I don't like the idea that you you just live somewhere because you're born there and that's kind of not a choice you've made. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I wanted to kind of choose to live somewhere. And then if I ever decided to go back to Australia or wherever I went from that point onwards would be a choice. And then it kind of just felt like, I don't know, I, I decided that thing. So um, I wanted to do that. I, I wanted to, I think I had the English, like kind of strangely, I had the English passport. And so I could go to, uh, at the time, anywhere in the EU before, you know, this Brexit nonsense happened and I screwed it all up for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I moved to the, the um to New York, which felt like kind of like the weird, like aside from London, feels like the center of the universe um, in many respects. And I found Brian Collins and Collins, um, who at the time was not a super well-known studio, but Brian was just this kind of like totally random, like X factor of a designer who's kind of lived in the advertising world in some respects, is this kind of master storyteller, um, uh, like really cares for craft, but also kind of lives outside of design and sees through the customer's eyes and through the eye story in a way that I guess kind of like gave me a different perspective of what design is. Um, and then through him started working on projects that had more scale and just started to kind of see this larger design problem that existed, um, out there. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've had the pleasure of interviewing a number of guys uh, like Brian with a lot more experience than myself and there's just I mean what a learning tree to sit under it's it's an incredible experience to just spend time around those guys right yeah I mean I, I you know he he ha- just has this reference like he's like a walking encyclopedia of creativity I've never seen someone who has such a well-rounded understanding of kind of the the world of creativity <clears throat> uh, art and music and just historically I think, you know, I feel like a lot of designers, we, we have like a very specific kind of bandwidth of knowledge and kind of references. And um, and he was just like, you know, had all this stuff from out of nowhere and this all these ideas. I, I mean, you know, I would I would try to explain some of them, but I'll do such poor justice to it. It's just not worth it. <laughs> But yeah, I think, you know, it's just like there's this black hole of this well of knowledge that was just super interesting to me. Um, And so outside of the design that I had experienced and kind of saw out there that I was like, you know, it can't, there's got to be something interesting to learn here. So I took that job. That was like almost six years ago, five and a half years ago. And I'm still here, which is kind of an unusual thing for people to stay at one place for that long unless they kind of own it. But um, I don't know. Every year, there's just been something new to learn and some new puzzle to solve, and it's and the job has changed dramatically, and the studio has changed dramatically, and so I've just stuck around for the ride. And I know you're creative director. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. He was mad enough to to make me creative director of the San Francisco studio, which was um, has has been its own incredible learning experience, but. Um, so that's been the last six months, and that's why it's kind of gone by in a wink of an eye. Is just not only the act of design, but designing conversations, designing process, designing a workplace that promotes creativity. You know, the, the design problems kind of change, and I still am, you know, I still work 
uh, as a practicing designer almost every day. Um, and it's kind of still at the heart of my passion and, you know, what I want to do. Um, but it's just been really interesting to kind of get a look at all the other pieces that go into making good work. And especially at Collins, um, kind of good work that has a sense of um, scale and impact to it, I think is we do a bunch of really nice like smaller projects and I think that that kind of stuff is really important to fuel creativity and to keep you sharp and to and you know that's like the as designers you know we're makers and that's where the passion comes from um but I I really like the fact that we can also take those skills and apply them in a way that kind of you know just makes general life more pleasant for everyone at a larger scale um but you have to kind of bounce between those two states Absolutely, and this is something I'm starting to see more and more with um, having, you know, had the pleasure of talking to good agencies. Now there seems to be a real mindfulness around balancing the workload that that all members of staff have. You know, it's. Um, I mean, I was talking to John's Knowles Ritchie agency in London recently, and they, and they were saying how they try to give them, you know, their, their, their designers two and three projects. Uh, a varying scales so that they're not just stuck on one account for example going over a six-month campaign you know they can jump onto let's say a smaller business with two people that they're working for and it just keeps things fresh and it keeps things moving which is really important yeah yeah it's super important you know we we have the same thing and we have kind of clients that are that are um like cultural institutions and things like that that just allow us to work in different sectors as well and and as you say at different scales and if we don't have them we make our own like at the end of this year we kind of decided we were going to make a bunch of christmas cards for everyone and that became a tool for the junior designers to kind of learn a little bit about print and print setup and going to their first kind of proof uh, and things like that and and you know i still love print and so i was very happy to do that kind of stuff and so and, you know, we find excuses to make those kinds of things and give ourselves these little um, things to do. So, you know, yeah, say it's super important, I think. It just keeps you sharp and keeps you interested and keeps that creative juice flowing. Because those longer projects, you know, I think there's ton- they change throughout the process, but there can be the sense of, like, there's no newness and it starts to feel a little bit stale, so you have to be able to kind of bounce around a bit. A hundred percent. Yeah, it's just, it's just, um, I'm always someone, I mean, it's always down to character type, but personally, I've always needed the variation. I mean, it's why I've ended up doing this show. It's why I end up writing around the illustration. And there are times when I get the guilt thinking, what am I doing? I'm an illustrator. That's how I make my money. But, you know, as we're all, like you say, we're all makers at heart in a, in a, to a degree. And, and I think it's really important just to keep things flowing like that. Yeah. Yeah. Give yourself little projects, even side projects. And then, you know, I, I think the other thing that's interesting or the relation I had, because I, you know, once I got into this kind of industry, I, like, you know, my, you can talk to my mom and uh, I'll, I'll send you her, I'll send her your details. Um, <laughs> and she'll tell you that, um, you know, I was not a particularly um, focused student at school, um, but then I got into design and, you know, and I became like an instant workaholic. And she's like, I never even hear from you anymore. You're always working all the time. And I think, you know, it comes down to just passion and caring about what you're doing. Um, but the less for me has actually been learning to not work in some respects because I think it's so easy to take on side projects and then work on weekends and just like make design. You get tunnel vision. Uh, um, and I, you know, recently I've been like learning more and more to kind of, you know, not not you know, designers about how 
sort of experience in the world and, and those un, unintended kind of influences come out in your work and help you think differently about stuff. And if you're always working on stuff, that's when you start putting new things in and you start kind of relying on a bag of tricks or old moves or looking at kind of the internet and things like that for, for inspiration rather than trying to find it kind of organically or for maybe it's just getting older for me but it's the same thing i very rarely work weekends and evenings now if I, if unless there's a project really worth doing that for because it's the same thing i've I've suffered burnout only minor but just you know by my own doing just taking too much on and, and you're right and we're human at the end of the day and if you're fatigued you're not going to be functioning in the way that you need to to create fresh ideas yeah i think i i, I think um often great designers are kind of like like masochistic optimists i feel like <laughs> You see the opportunity in everything, and you're kind of willing to hurt yourself in order to get there. Um, you know, design design is like this thing where there's no like there's no like finish line. So I feel <laughs> this is probably a slightly defeatist way of putting it, but I feel like you know, it's almost like you don't give up when a project's perfect. Or you don't stop when a project's perfect. It's like the moment where there's like diminishing return, where you kind of like, okay, this th- I could keep moving this around, but I really like this thing, and it's time for me to move on to something else. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like there's like a lot of you know because because it's such a nebulous concept and it's driven by subjectivity and all of this kind of stuff. It's kind of like there's no point at which you you're certain that things are done, or sometimes you are, but. And often quality comes out of the amount of time and energy that you put into something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, just look at some of your projects. I, I, um, I love the inflatable work. So I think there was such a sense of fun um, around not just the typography um, and how fun that felt, but 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 seeing this thing come to life in you know in in its form in the, in the exhibition. How what kind of a project was that like to work on? And halfway through that one, first thing I want to say is I can't take personal. For any of the projects um, solo and specifically in this case it started with um, Matt Luckers who was working out here as well and the designer on our team called Sohi who's like kind of got a part illustration background and then um, uh, the, we have like a motion guy named Chris who kind of hacked some software to inflate uh, letters and, and the so the project became I mean it's kind of like um, so anyway I just wanted to give a shout out to those guys because you know they're they're the people who had pen to page on this one and I was kind of in there and behind the scenes helping shape things here and there especially towards the second half of the project but um, those guys are like the real heroes yeah. um, the I, I think it's interesting so the Exploratorium is a client that we have done a bunch of work with and they're really fun to work with they're kind of a museum about science and phenomena, but they don't over-explain things. So it's not like a, it's a very hands-on museum. So they basically have a bunch of exhibits that you can touch and feel, and they don't explain what that exhibit is. It's just like maybe it's a pendulum with a bunch of magnets or a slow-motion camera or like some kind of weird gravity um, toy. And you basically go in and just play with kind of scientific experiments and learn through doing rather than learn through kind of like academically being told what something is mm-hmm. um, and so a lot of all the work that we do with them we try to take that idea and and bring it into our work as well so in the case of inflatables you know it's kind of like the dumbest idea in the world it's a it's a um it's an it's a series of artwork that's really big and inflated so we take the word inflatable and just inflate it <laughs> um but we kind of like the idea that you 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 know you just very kind of um, you don't have to, it just does what it says. 
kind of tacitly have this sense of like physicality of the experience. You kind of understand what it's going to be about just by looking at the letters. Yeah. And so for us, it was just like a really simple, dumb idea. We use the word dumb a lot at Collins as a good word, which generally means kind of straightforward and honest mm. um, and kind of like unpretentious. And I think that's a really interesting notion to take into design too, especially for like a general audience. So, so I think it goes back to like you were saying about um, trends to a degree, you know, that it's often there's over stylization can be dangerous sometimes and, and there's nothing wrong with simplicity. In fact, when you, when it's nailed, it could be the most powerful thing. Um, right. And that's, I think that's what really came across to me. And when I saw the project, I just, I wanted to get in there, you know, I wanted to play with not just the exhibition, but the typography and you know, everything about it yeah. really, really, it just knit very well. And I think that makes total sense what you said there and your use of the word dumb is really, really great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's one of those things as well. I think the concept is really simple, and, but the execution is probably, you know, it's, it's still illustrative and kind of complex. And I'll tell you every public conceivable lockup of that type. And we wanted it to conform to, to like contextually kind of change based on the, the situation that it was in. And so, you know, we were constantly like reinflating the letters in 3d and then handing them to Sohi and she would kind of redraw them and draw all the highlights in and, you know, we wanted it to have this sense of kind of musicality. Every time you came in contact with it, it was kind of a different thing. And like things like the bus where the letters, we tried to wrap the letters around the door and have it give it, you know, there's the vent for the bus goes through the center of the E and it's kind of like deformed around that. <laughs> um, it's just like, you know, those are, it's so much fun doing that stuff, but it's also like, you know, talk about masochistic optimists, you know, we, we like tripled our workload by deciding that that was going to be a constraint. And that was never something that the client put on us. It was just kind of a personal, you know, if we're going to do this right, this is what it's going to take and let's all hold hands and just do it. I think it's a bold attitude and it's encouraging to hear that, you know, there's a lot of integrity involved there. Yeah. I think, well, and that goes back to that kind of earlier statement. That's just like at the end of the day, the, the quality of the work, I think, in many respects, comes down to the designer and not necessarily the client and the designer kind of pushing to get it to that point where they're um, where they're kind of happy with it. I think you're right. I had um, I don't know if you're aware of Studio Sutherland's work, but yes, um, I had Jim on the show a few episodes ago, and, and that's the point he made. He he was very against the idea that there were would be excuses. You know, he said even under constraints of you know, the, the the classic constraints we go through, whether there are too many cooks or, or the brief is not great, he felt that there is always a good solution to be found that, uh, if we want to find it and, and if we're prepared to, you know, to, to negotiate with the, with the clients at hand. And um, and I guess that echoes what you just said. Yeah, no, I love that episode. I was, um, I, and I was kind of like, I actually, you know, had a few notes coming out of it where it was like, you know, we have the very similar ideas but yeah, I totally agree. I think design is is the in many respects the art of constraint, or you know, this idea that necessity is the mother of invention is something that you kind of need to embrace as a designer. It's like, okay, so these are the constraints we have. Whether that's kind of oper- whether that's a brief constraint, or whether that's kind of operationally a constraint, um, how do we like solve this problem within that, or use the kind of challenges um, as a as a strength rather than a weakness? I think that's one of my favorite just like conceptual tricks is to go, okay, the, the client said this and this seems like it's really annoying and kind of kills our potential in some way. But let's take that idea and see if there's a way that we can invert it and make it kind of a strength of the brand. 
Um, so, you know, like the client has no money. Okay, let's make the brand out of all free assets online or um, everything has to be a template. Okay, let's make the whole design system out of kind of system fonts. I think there's like always a way to flip it into a strength and make the make the weakness like the idea. It's this classic, I think it's like, I, I can't remember, this is gonna be terrible, I can't remember the, it might be like a, I'm, I'm gonna attribute it wrongly, so I'm not gonna attribute it, but <laughs> this idea of like, if the client says make the logo bigger, then make the logo the biggest thing on the page and just make that the idea. I think that's a really kind of interesting way of going about problems and that speaks to that kind of, you know, what it means to be a designer, which is like take whatever challenge, take the ch- what the challenge is and try to make that the strength. Yeah, uh, 100%. And um, one of my favourite examples of that is um, Sir John Hegarty and he was talking about the, the Boddington's campaign, you know, when, when the, the south of England didn't like a head on their beer and Boddington's was his family, right. his famous, you know, creamy Manchester beer. So right. there was this panic going on and it's how do we... You know how do we how do we get round that? Do we do we you know do we change the beer? All the all this chaos going on, and Hegarty was the one who came up with the fact that no, we just we we really push that and we really make that the hero. And hence his famous campaign with a flake in the beer and uh, using it as shaving foam and all you know these amazing uses of that foam. And that ended up becoming right. something that suddenly people wanted in because the campaign was so cool. And and it's just you know moments like that are fantastic. And sh- you know that's what I guess we should be striving for really. Totally, totally. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think it 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 gets also to like another point, which um, I think is kind of an interesting point of design at scale that I've learned that just you know it just sparked this thought. So it's a little bit of a non sequitur, but maybe this is interesting. Um, is kind of the like the lesson I've learned about design at scale, is, and one of the most interesting things to me is the success of a of a big brand really comes down to building, not just making something beautiful that solves the problem and is a, you know, a strong, inherently a strong idea, but also ensuring that the, the people who are going to be executing it, who aren't you, are kind of passionate about it as well and have the skill sets and are set up internally and organizationally to go and make that work and continue to make it live forever because, you know, the saddest thing is you can make the greatest piece of design in the world and then you hand it over to someone and if they're not into it it just dies and then it lives as a pdf on someone's hard drive forever and not actually as a brand i think that's a um i think that's a really big challenge that so many designers uh, i mean i mean i think that's one of the main reasons that um i think you know design at scale can can go off the tracks i think it's a problem that a lot of designers ignore or just don't see um and i think that's like one of the kind of meta problems that collins is kind of fascinated with trying to solve um and we've solved it a bunch of different ways i think we still have tons of lessons to learn but you know this idea of like how do you enable others to be better designers and to um kind of you know take what you've created and 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 evolve it into the future as well I mean, it's something that we all have to deal with to a degree, but yes, scale is, is just another monster altogether. Um, totally. In terms of that, the, the Vitamin Water project was very interesting. What, what was what was your involvement with that? Ah, that was... Uh, um, okay, so again, let me just shout out to the team who was on that. So that was um, me and then a designer uh, named Leo Porto, who's an absolute superstar, uh, and then Esther Lee and... Um, uh, I think that's it. I'll, they'll crucify me if I forget anyone. <laughs> <laughs> and then obviously Brian Collins was around in the background, kind of like, you know, just dropping wisdom here and there and 
shattering preconceived notions. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. So the interesting, the interesting thing, it was the same thing. It was kind of like, I mean, I remember when Vitamin Water came out in stores and the, um, it was designed by like Doug Lloyd or something. It was a fashion designer. Um, and they, they made a product that literally looked like medicinal packaging. And then the copy on the packaging had this really kind of irreverent tone of voice. And I remember coming across it in, again, you know, this is like, you know, that moment where before I was a designer, I remember seeing Vitamin Water and being like, oh, I, I love that. It's so interesting looking, the bright colors and the kind of medical packaging. And I remember drinking Vitamin Water and, and you know, uh, enjoying it as a brand. Um, before I really knew what brands were, they were kind of still this like thing that just affected you emotionally. Um, and so when we, with the, the project came across our desk and I just like stuck my hand up and said, I really want to work on this. Um, Vitamin Water hadn't changed. It had been, you know, this kind of risky brand, um, but people had just kind of become house blind to it. And so they wanted to, I guess, just revitalize the brand identity, um, signal a couple of new things around kind of variety. They have all these different flavors now. Um, they wanted to kind of um, appeal to a kind of a, a younger audience and kind of um, a few things. So anyway, um, and the, the, you know, we were working with Coke and Coke is kind of like they have this, they have basic rules which are like, okay, the bottle has to always be the hero. Um, you, you know, at the end of the day, we want this drink to be the thing that's linked to the thing. So again, in that same idea of kind of twisting the constraint into a strength, we were like, okay, well, if the bottle is going to be the hero and the label is super good, why don't we just build the entire design system out of the bottle itself? Um, and so we just kind of, you know, it's almost like um, like a Warhol soup can. We just kind of took the bottle and made that the hero and took all the different colors and the flavors and, and made this kind of drawing of it that could flip and tessellate and turn into all these different things. Um, and then, you know, from there, built like photography styles and um, a whole bunch of other stuff, um, which was awesome. We worked with um, this guy named Alex Center, who was the design director of Coca-Cola and worked at Vitamin Water for ages and was just a wonderful partner on this whole project. Um, and he's since started his own design studio called Center Design. So uh, I would keep an eye out for there'll be something coming out of there soon, I'm sure. Um, and and then, yeah, and then, you know, at the end of it, we kind of decided that since the bottle itself was this kind of physical object, um, that we should do a kind of brand book and then cap the whole history of water in the front half, um, you know, 50 Cent, all of the kind of weird things that they've done as a brand, they turned up in like Dodgeball movie, um, <laughs> and like in The Simpsons did a parody on them and like all this kind of stuff. Uh, and so just capturing a lot of that stuff and the story of Vitamin Water and then um, guidelines in the back, you know, again, because I'm just in, in the background obsessed with print and I love to make physical objects. I think design is not just visual. It's also, you know, the physical experience of things, whether that's a space or a printed object or um, so forth. So, um, and yeah, we all just kind of made this like hyper colored rainbow book, which was an absolute blast. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is very fun, actually. It was really, uh, it made me want to get, get my hands on the thing. We have a few. The the thing is, it contains a bunch of kind of. Um, you, you, we get you would you would not believe how many requests we get for the book, but we can't sell it because it contains a bunch of stuff um, that's kind of um, Coca Cola, you know, stuff that the general public can't really have. So you know, occasionally people drop by and we you know they get a book here and there but it's not something that we can publicly make available which is really <laughs> sad because i would yeah. love for everyone to have a copy <laughs> uh, 
I, t- I try to talk to them about like maybe we could reprint a version of it that just takes those bits out and make that available to the public. But I don't know. Maybe one day. I mean, in terms of locations, also where you've been based, New York, San Francisco. Are you are you mindful of of soaking those places up? Because I just see so many people now with their heads down on their phones and worry about. The, the influence of that on um, you know on design and on, on visual communication. Yeah, I think um, geography plays a huge role in the kind of influence and the kind of design you do. Not, to, I mean, like Australia very much looked up to European design, and so there was a lot. I mean, there's a lot of European designers in Australia or design companies who kind of live in that um, European kind of influence. Um, I remember, you know. I remember learning about the Designers Republic and, and all those guys through my first, through Maud and David Park at my first job and just kind of being like, you know, I it just like unlocked all of this like design history that I hadn't seen in school. You know, my course was very broad. And so like specifically graphic design, you know, that was like almost a second degree just working in a branding studio and, and like, you know, siphoning like his influences out of his brain as much as I could. Um, and that stuff became a huge influence on me. But then you come to the U.S. and so many people don't know any of those influences. And I thought that was really interesting as well. Mm. And, you know, Massimo Vignelli and and, and um, all those guys, um, Pushpin Studio, that kind of stuff. Those are kind of like the the kind of, you know, hero places, Herb LeBallon. Um, yeah, so that was really interesting to me. And then New York, so th- I think that was a good a good kind of moment because I think it, I learned a bunch of stuff about European design and then kind of, and like Dutch design, which I fell in love with. And then everyone fell in love with, I think everyone's been in love with it forever, but it felt to me like there was this moment in time where suddenly everyone was into kind of like the Dutch style of design. Um, you know, Wim Crow and Karl Martens is like the, the, a reference on everyone's board now. <laughs> yeah. I didn't feel like it was that in the past, but maybe it was, I don't know. Maybe that's just my <laughs> inexperience showing, but, um, and then I learned all this U.S. design, which tends to be like way more, you know, it's not as much about like grids and kind of quietness and it's way more exuberant and kind of comes from like this sign painter influence. And so it just has way more like looseness and expressiveness inherently in it. And I think that was a really interesting kind of moment for me. And New York, the city is just unbelievable. You know, it's like an absolute collision zone of like influences and um, ideologies and everyone's kind of just on their way somewhere trying to make something with themselves or in a project. And so I think it's an incredible place to be as a designer. You'll never find anywhere that does, that feeds you kind of more, you know, in some respects it's too much. It's kind of like, you know, as a designer, it's like foie gras or something. Someone's just like jamming stuff down your throat. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Too much. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you don't know what to do with it all, but it's really good. Um, I, I like you know Collins and Collins, San Francisco and New York. We're lucky we have like eighteen different nationalities in a studio of like I think we're like forty or forty five. Wow. Um, you know, it's like Brazil, France, um, Korea. Like I don't know, I'm not going to go through the England, Australia. That's me. Um, just like all over the place, and I think that's like really healthy. Um, and everyone comes with their own kind of local or you know their own kind of repertoire of things that influence them and that they love both personally and sometimes culturally as well. And so it just gives us a huge range 
um, of reference that's really interesting. And that, I think in many respects, that's kind of like a microcosm of what New York is, um, which is just this like wildly diverse place. And then San Francisco is its own thing. I think I'm really drawn to San Francisco. I think one, because it reminds <laughs> the weather and the temperament and the pace of life reminds me of Australia. And so maybe I just need a little bit of that. Um, and then two, I just think that there's companies out here, like, you know, that specifically the tech companies, but these people are kind of rethinking or reshaping the way that our world literally works. Um, and, and there's so much potential for design. You know, they think so much in, in terms of product design. Design is value, but it's very much product design. Mm-hmm. And there's so much potential for visual design to have that kind of, you know, to have a role in that kind of journey and, and have that influence. So, um, you know, I, I like to think a lot, like Raymond Lowy has a bunch of good quotes, but one of them is like, you know, I think one of the, at the end of his career, he's kind of like, I, I left, you know, at the end of the 20th century, or I left the 20th century feeling like I made it more pleasant. Um, and I kind of really like that idea mm. of, um, you know, and that goes back to that thing of like, you know, my frustration is this house of mirrors and designers kind of looking to other designers for approval rather than, you know, I think there's so much potential for design to have this larger voice in shaping culture. And I feel like we often turn our backs on it because it's hard. Um, or maybe, maybe, you know, because we, you know, we, we kind of, you know, we're trying to fuel that passion and that craft and we kind of lose sight of that larger, <clears throat> challenge and then and then you know <clears throat> we all kind of turn around and get frustrated when a bad kind of big project comes out but i don't know so I, part of me is like i really want to try to tackle that challenge head on and see if we can kind of take all that craft and that good stuff from like that small studio mentality and that value and bring it to um, projects that have um you know I don't know. That's why the tech companies out here are so interesting to me. I think you just, you know, you get your work in the hands of millions of people and you can really kind of affect change at this big scale. So absolutely I'm fascinated by that. Absolutely. And I, I get so wound up with the, the ridiculous backlash for, you know, like, like you said about a big brand or a big logo coming out. And I just think, oh, come on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I get it. We're all passionate about what we do. But some of the vitriolic responses, I I'm scratching my head. Yeah, it's a, I know. It's like, you know, people don't like change. I think that's one thing. Um, and it's just, you know, you just don't... The, it's it's powers more complex working with these big organizations. And there's, you know, the, the challenge you're trying to solve is not just an aesthetic one, but an organizational one and a kind of meaning, like, you know, what why does our company deserve to exist? What do we do for people? Like, those are kind of the questions that we're kind of trying to answer. Mm-hmm. And you're also trying to create things for people that, um, you know, you, you, you can't just you can't just say, you know, I, I think about it in terms of like a coffee barista. When you if you walk into a coffee store and you don't know that much about coffee and you walk in, you're like, I'd like a coffee. And the barista is really rude to you because you don't know anything about coffee. You know, that's a horrible experience. And I feel like as designers, often we treat our audience like that, where it's like, well, if you if you don't understand my work, that's your problem. You need to go get smarter. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, in some respects, I think that's, you know, we should try to elevate our audience. But I also think you can't, you know, so many people over rotate into that and just they're like, okay, well, if they don't get me, I'm just going to go talk to these people who understand me. And then, you know, we get stuck in this world where we're not actually, you know, we're just talking to each other. 
I think that there's got to be this like middle ground. <laughs> I feel like there has to be this middle ground. And that's kind of what I'm in search of. And I think, you know, what Collins is in search of as well. That's really interesting to me is uh, design, design that like works at that bigger scale. Not that I don't like, I, you know, I'm still, if someone puts a book project in front of me, I will literally have to wipe drool off my chin. <laughs> but, you know, mentally, like, you know, if I step back, I got to be like, okay, I want to drive for this kind of this like notion of how can we make these these bigger puzzles work for us as well. Well, yeah, well uh, is there anything? Uh, uh, sorry, I just talked myself out. <laughs> no, that was no, it was great. There's some really valuable stuff in there, <laughs> and it's nice. No, good. Myself out of steam. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, okay. Well, let's get to the shack in the tank then. I think we've covered a lot of ground there, and um, well, you know, it sounds like you know about the question, and it's a bit of a love and a hit, or a posi- <laughs> positive and a negative. It's as uh, fun or as serious as you like uh, about the your yeah. creativity and the work you do. Okay, let me start with the because I gave away my big hate, or not not my hate, but I guess you know I think uh, an observation that I think is interesting to me anyway, which is what we just talked about. So the purely tactical hate, I fucking hate geometric sans serifs. Not that I hate them inherent, <laughs> not that I hate them inherently. I think they're nice typefaces, but like they're so overused at this point it's just infuriating <laughs> you know everyone's it just feels like everyone's like navigating towards this same kind of center you know and i think that's another challenge of this kind of the 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 accessibility of design and all this design that's out there is i think this homogenization is happening more and more um, and i i like when you when you dig up old design like we just our library in New York is kind of like a place where we try to start a lot of projects. And in San Francisco, we just actually did a run to the bookstore last uh, last Thursday or Friday and bought like a bunch of books, um, you know, all sorts of different stuff. And then there's the um, there's the type oh, – I'm going to get this wrong. There's like a typographic archive here in San Francisco that's just um, incredible with the specimens they have. And anyway, all that's to say – you open up some of these old books and the things in there are just like mind blowingly different from the stuff that's out there. And it's when you open those things up and you kind of see that stuff like the, um, like Japanese TDC books and things like that. And you're, and you're like, you, it suddenly brings into focus how narrow we've kind of gotten with our kind of aesthetic references in design and how much more there is that you can do. That's just like, you know, you start to see the rules we're playing by and how they kind of, other people in like silos and bubbles, their work just came out totally different because they were, weren't so kind of focused on what other designers were doing, but just kind of trying to solve this problem in an interesting way. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so that, so that's I guess the reference thing, and then you know, geometric sans serifs is kind of like the full guy for that in my mind. It's just like the most preeminent version of this. Kind <laughs> it's like let's all make our logo a geometric sans serif and call it a day yeah (laughs) Um, that's that's something we're kind of actively fighting you know inflatables i think um mailchimp um was an attempt to kind of bring a logo that had more character and flavor to it and didn't have you know um that kind of sensibility i think you know we it's actually something we directly have conversations with clients with now where we show all the brands like google that went to geometric sans serif ebay that kind of buttoned itself up um you know logitech all these brands and not to say that the the old logos were better than the new logos but just that all the new logos are drawing from the same well in terms of you know their visual 
um, reference. Uh, and I think that's kind of a concern I see that's out there. That's kind of, so that's my, that's my hate. And then my love, that's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I just love working in design. I think it's like a absolute laugh. Um, and, and, you know, it's, full of really great people who are just interested in life and culture and the conversations and the kind of, I, I feel like we're so lucky to live, to live in a world that is kind of work in a world that feels kind of enriching for the soul and the mind. Um, and kind of allows you to kind of grow as a person through the projects you work on. I love in branding the fact that you can, that you kind of get to dip into other people's worlds I think it's one of the, you know, as a, as a, I guess, um, typical semi ADD kind of millennial myself, um, with a short attention span, it's amazing to, you know, every time you kick off a project to get to go into a client's office and, and dig into their world and learn about what it is they do. And then, you know, three, six months later, you kind of on to the next one. Um, and I think that's just super interesting to me. So. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's uh, yeah, all the all the things you never expected to learn about that you get in a in a visual communication job is beautiful. Yeah, I, I know think yeah, like much about we worked on this um, hair coloring company, and now I know so much about hair coloring, which I never would have known before. <laughs> and you know, the Exploratorium and science and phenomena and Spotify and music, um, vitamin water and, and Coca-Cola and just like drinks in general is a wild space and like snacks and, you know, just all these different things. Yeah. Um, so interesting. Brilliant. Well, um, that's been a, a pleasure. And, um, yeah, thank you very much for your time, Ben. My pleasure. It was, uh, it was a lovely experience. You were, you were gentle as promised. Thank you so much to Ben Crick for taking the time out to chat about his work as creative director at Collins. I'm sure you'll agree that's a really inspiring, insightful conversation and there's a lot of hard truths that came up in that chat in a very lovely, disarming way, as you'll find with a lot of designers that we're sensitive souls, a lot of people in the creative industry, uh, but we're passionate. So it doesn't mean that we're not big characters and, and, and this is one of the things that I mentioned my project earlier in the show, Lend Me Your Ear. Uh, this celebration through these these uh, musicians of character in all its different forms. Um, for Andy and I, it was really important to get the spread. So you've got anyone from Dave Grohl and you've got uh, the Gallaghers, you've got Smash Mouth characters like them. We've got people like Plan B who are very passionate about uh, young people and disadvantaged young people, right through to quieter... Ephemeral characters like Beck, uh, FKA Twigs, Florence and the Machine. Um, and you can come and see that exhibition. We're going to be announcing the date on the next episode and on the social media in between. And in the meantime, go and take a look at the website, lendmeyourearart.com. Um, and I thought Ben just exemplifies that. You know, that I, there are very few characters that I interview on this show who are brash, who are loud. And I think often there's a misconception about confidence equating to loudness, and it's absolutely not the case. For anyone that's been a long-term listener of the show, there was an episode, one of the earlier ones, with uh, Kat Nelligan, who was running a project called The Creative Introvert, and it was all about helping people who had those quieter characters to to shout about themselves and, and find the best ways to do that. So it's, it's another subject that comes up time and time again and one that I'm fascinated about. So get me your thoughts uh, on that or anything else that Ben and I talked about over on the social at Arrest All Mimics. Hit us up direct if you want. I want your suggestions for the show. If you've done something cool, let me know. Who knows? Maybe it's going to end up in an episode. That happens quite often. 
Um, and thank you again to the sponsors, illustrationweb.com, heartinternet.co.uk, foilco.co.uk, who you really should go and check out their fantastic new rebrand by Studio DBD's Dave Sedgwick. Um, and, of course, the Association of Illustrators, who are doing a wonderful business empowerment campaign at the moment with the hashtag NotToHobby. So go and take a look at all that good stuff. As I mentioned earlier, we've got loads of awesome episodes coming up. We've got illustrator Dominic Byron. We've got Carmen Masson coming up talking about play and, and, and large-scale work. Uh, Sean Thomas from John's Knowles Ritchie. We've got all sorts coming up. Loads of good shows in the bag. There's going to be a couple of special episodes based around Lemuria. We're going to have Andy Cotterill and I talking about the project and all the legends that he's photographed on the show. Uh, and we're going to gonna also get Young Urban Arts Foundation CEO and founder, Kerry O'Brien on the show, who's uh, just an awesome tour de force who's doing essential work despite the cuts um, around youth services and the rest of it. So fighting the good fight, so keep it up, whatever you're up to, stay passionate. Um, give us a shout, feedback at Arrest on the Mix. Drop us a little review on iTunes if you get a second or whatever platform you're listening to this stuff on. Thank you so much for your time, guys. Cheers for coming back. Spread the word. Want to hear new people all the time. Numbers going good. Nice one. Take care. Have a good week.